Hello, and welcome to Saving People, Queering Things, a Supernatural podcast. We were previously known as Driver Picks the Podcast, and the episode you're about to listen to was recorded under that name. Though our name has changed as of season three, our show hasn't changed that much. Our structure and theme-based discussions are the same, and we're so glad you're here. Now, let's get on the road. Hello, and welcome to Driver Picks the Podcast, the show where we talk about ghosts, road trips, and free will through every episode of the TV series Supernatural. Today, we will be discussing Season 1, Episode 17, Hell House, through the theme of youth. I am Abigail, your host, and joining me today, my best friend, Hannah. Hello. How are you today? Oh, even better for having watched this with you. I'm very excited to discuss it. Me too. This is a such a fun episode that I realize I think I've only seen once or twice in all of my many years of watching Supernatural. So it's a good time. (laughs) So it's now time for our series recap, The Road So Far. This is just going to be a brief summary of what has happened so far in the series. We are now at episode 17. We are only about five episodes away from the season one finale, which is super exciting. The, so John Winchester, and his two sons have been hunting supernatural beings since Mary Winchester, the boy's mother, was killed um, in a mysterious fire when Sam was a baby. And so Sam and Dean, these two boys, have been searching for John as John has also gone missing. And as They have been searching. They have been hunting different supernatural beings. In the last episode, the hunt for John Winchester came to a head when Meg, a girl who has been tracking the boys since about episode 11, set a trap for John by capturing Sam and Dean. But when the boys were able to escape, John only briefly talks to them to explain that he actually just has to go off on his own again to continue to hunt the demon that killed both their mother, Mary, and also Sam's girlfriend, Jessica. And this episode basically takes place right after Sam and Dean and John split ways again and Sam and Dean go off. Um, So that brings us to this episode, episode 17, Hell House, and to our famed 30-second recap. I know we're going to just, the whole point of this is that we're going to discuss this episode. And yet, in this moment, I would like to bring up the point that you and I briefly discussed already, which is this episode is a little loose plot-wise. So coming yeah. up with this recap is not as narratively coherent as I would expect otherwise. No. And this is an odd episode placement-wise, which we'll also probably talk about. But we've mm-hmm. just come off of a couple of really plot-heavy episodes. And then we get this weird one-off that is very disconnected yeah. to the major plot. And we just had like a huge revelation, a couple huge revelations in the previous episode. And the previous episode is a very heavy one. And this one is like tone-wise, so different. So different. Yeah. Well, yeah. Shall, we, okay. shall we give it a whirl? Uh, why not? Let me pull up my little, my own little timer. Okay. Three, two. One, go. So Sam and Dean, recovering from having just seen their father after hunting him down, sort of take a detour in Texas. They hear that somebody in a haunted house has been killing, stringing up women only. Sam found it on a sketchy site. Turns out it's not a ghost. It's not responding to rock salt. Turns out the people running the sketchy site have actually summoned a thought demon ghost of sorts who is not targeting women. It's just kind of following the lore they create for it. It's a wild ride. Pranks. Okay, you ready for me to count you in? Yes, I am. Three, two, one, go. So there are these two guys who have been hunting supernatural beings and they have been hunting. They're looking at this one spirit in this one house in Texas. Oh, and oh wait, this is not actually about Sam and Dean. This is about these two guys that have this internet site and Sam and Dean show up and find out that these guys have actually in their investigating of paranormal situations, they've actually summoned a topa, which is a thought spirit and Sam and Dean have to then stop it and also get these people off the trail. Nice. Yeah, impossible to summarize. Impossible to summarize. Though also like not a lot happens. 
this was a filler episode. They gave this to the writing interns and the writing interns are the people who eventually wrote fanfic for the show. We felt it. Yeah, we felt it. And But also, like, I have a, a lot of fondness for this episode because it doesn't contribute to the long-term plot. Well, it, it does slightly, but it doesn't contribute to the long-term, like, main plot. It's a very fun one-off. It is. And it introduces it us to Ed and Harry. This this show has writers that lean into what the fandom would also lean into and what fanfic mm-hmm. would also lean into. And this is happening in season one before there was really a fandom to have a million yeah. theories about this. And it's it does feel like a fanfic episode in some ways. <laughs> it really does. It's kind of interesting because it's not, you don't have the fanfic specific take on the characters because you're right, we don't get that until the show is actually established. People have really met them and know them. But sort of the, the like tropey approach, right? You get these really classic shots of like the kids at the diner telling their differing stories. You get the like the prank war, which is very classic, like leaning into the brother relationship in a way that the show ends up kind of leaning away from. Mm-hmm. Right. You get this sort of throwaway plot that hints a bigger lore, doesn't really dig into it, kind of gets solved, kind of just gets left unanswered, establishes some new really quirky characters. Right. This was clearly a, like a good moment, a sort of break for the audience mm-hmm. in a way that feels very fanfic like because it's enjoy it's just sitting and enjoying the characters it really is there's no deeper like this is probably one of the first episodes where we won't really talk in depth about like their traumatic childhood and like we probably will still a little because (laughs) let's face it we always find a way but this episode on on just the surface level is there I made I Hannah and I were messaging while we were watching the episode and I mess one of the things I messaged was being like I don't think there's very many episodes where they're this purely happy Mm. where it's like it's not and it's not like they're happy as a cover or they're happy as a coping strategy it's like they actually just seem to be genuinely enjoying the job in a way Mm -hmm. that we do not see very often and I it's a nice it's a nice break from the heavier episodes we've been in a string of like pretty heavy episodes since about episode like 11 or 12 we've been in like pretty heavy thematic episodes and plot development for both brothers have had some like pretty heavy stuff happen and this is a nice break before we're going to get really the ramp up to the end of the season Mm -hmm. on that note we're going to talk about this episode through our chosen theme and this week our theme is youth I really, I know that we say this every single time. I love that the themes that we randomly pull fit these episodes so well. Um, You said youth, and I was like, oh, I don't really remember this episode. I don't know how this is going to work. And then right (laughs) off the fucking bat, this is what we're handed. I kind of on the theme of what we were actually just saying, we see the boys really just enjoying themselves, just having a moment. And especially from a writing perspective, we understand why this is here. It gives the audience a downbeat. It lengthens the drama. It uh, lessens the drive so that we're not emotionally exhausted or overinvested. And it reminds us that there are characters, right? All of these writing reasons. But for the audience's experience, what we technically see is we see these boys bonding with each other after kind of these horrific revelations. Yeah. Right. This sort of, this response to really difficult things by fooling around with your sibling is so classic, right? The number of times that my siblings and I have gotten in trouble or had a really shitty time or are just kind of going through it. And we like muddle through it together by just giving each other immense shit. Mm-hmm. Um, endless time you know someone gets in trouble with mom and dad comes back to the room and we're we're goofing off you know that ends yeah. up being the night that we're up till 4 a.m with the giggles um yeah. which is probably not helping us get out of trouble but I was kind of struck by that joy and that really light-hearted exuberance throughout this episode because like you said we don't really see that but it's also because they're so serious all the time yeah they're so focused on the mission on finding dad on solving Jess's death 
and on their own personal traumas, like their own personal individual journeys. And we don't get to see them just kind of like, I was thinking too, that this episode is one of the ones where they really feel like their age, like they feel like a couple of kids in their early twenties, just like mucking about and like, yes, they're on this hunt, but they're also just, yeah, like bonding with each other. They're also just like, the job is the backdrop yeah. to like what's really important in this episode, which is them having fun together and, yeah. and yeah, connecting. I think that's a really good point that you made about this is their opportunity to work through even some of the harder stuff they've been through by just playing prank wars and being with each other and even when Sam says at one point, you know, the one time that they kind of referenced the big plot where Sam goes, you know, dad, you know, we've split with dad. And like, I didn't agree with that, but like, we got to find a hunt. Even when he says that it's not like this resentful, like we've got to find a hunt. It's a like, well, until we find, until we like find dad again, like we, mm-hmm. we're going to just like hunt together. We're just going to like be together. And I, yeah, I also agree with like that experience of like bonding with siblings by doing that, by you just keep doing your life and you muck around with them because it helps you feel better. And yeah, some of those moments of like right after really big challenging stuff, some of the like just dumb things you do with siblings end up meaning the most because there are that reprieve. Yeah, not to, I know we mentioned that this episode doesn't really bring up a lot of their trauma, but that we go for them. <laughs> right, in, in reading a lot about trauma, which I feel like a lot of us have done this year, if we haven't done it previously, mm-hmm. um, as we sort of work through this international traumatic event, it's ongoing. Um, looking at like sources of trauma going all the way back to childhood and like neural development mm-hmm. and attachment development. Um, Something I've read about and uh, processed a lot has been the ways that accepting or accessing childhood is healing. Um, and not, not to say, you know, you don't cling like hold to adulthood, but very much this understanding of like people talk about their inner child or talk about, um, right? I even think of like a Bible verse, right? Um, of like loving like little children, right? It's this very idea of the preciousness of childhood and how, just how bolstering that can be. And the fact that they bring that out in each other, you're right, this is like, we're finally sitting with how young they are in a very specific way. We've seen it glimpsed through different lenses. We see Dean putting on this huge oversized jacket. We technically know how young they are. Sam talking about Stanford incessantly, but like this is a moment where they bring the childhood out in each other and you see that they built it for each other in a way that no one else did. And that's where they find like joy and being grounded. Mm-hmm. It is through play, like yeah. on that same note of like childhood. Um, when children go through traumatic experiences, we like the research shows like they they act that out through play and like children that's how they process. And I think it's interesting because yes, they are, Sam and Dean are technically adults, but they're very young adults who in a lot of ways didn't have a normal childhood. And they are like working out this stuff and they're getting to play in ways, some ways that, you know, I think they didn't have as children. Um, And that's just, yeah, really, it's really refreshing to see that them acting young and even, you know, quote unquote immature, um, you know, way that's not just a defense mechanism like this is not they're not playing prank wars because of yeah it's not a deflection from like what's really going on like I mean yes they're not talking about anything more significant at this point but it's because the the play itself is what's necessary it is the meaningful work that they're doing the meaningful work of like building their relationship of like having a break together of like doing some of the things like going back to their childhood and going back to what's been meaningful about their relationship since they were children. Like even all of the references in this, like in a lot of other episodes, references to their childhood are references to their childhood trauma. In this episode, references to their childhood are to 
the dumb pranks that they played on each other as children are like callbacks to like clearly things they did to get under each other's skin. And it's just like really refreshing. It is, it really is. God, it's the, it's the way that they build on this, right? Like you just said, the sort of callback. I don't know. I know that we're all, we're all sibling bitches in the room, but (laughs) yeah, those like routines that you build. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that you made a really nice point too about the fact that they don't unpack on screen what's just happened. Probably should, probably should be processing that a little bit more externally, even though we're, we know the boys, that's probably not happening. it got me thinking about how they are typically so serious and how Dean in particular is sort of responsible for holding the seriousness of situations, right? Taking it seriously, really being like the adult in the situation, even when he was a child in these childhood flashbacks that we see in other ways and how this play is sort of stolen in a way. Yes. Can I, I want to make a, and, and this is going to be a, a tiny little spoiler. We're going to talk about this actually in the very next episode that we record, but the f- next episode oh, yeah. is um, something wicked. It's the first episode with significant flashbacks. And one of the things, as soon as you oh. start talking about how his like childhood play kind of got stolen from him, and this is his opportunity to kind of reclaim that, um, in that, in that episode, we're going to see a scene where he's gone off to play as like a kid in an arcade and something bad happens because he went off and then we see John like like reprimanding him for basically being a child and playing and so like it makes me think about the fact that he is I think in a lot of ways not allowed himself to indulge in play because he was you know told by John and like told that his responsibility he had to be another adult in the situation and so Mm -hmm. it's I think that's another reason why this episode is so sweet because you just see him not having to play like he's the adult like Mm -hmm. him and Sam are on good or in a good space and Sam is an adult and he can like play a prank on Sam and it's not going to put Sam in mortal danger he can he can play and be goofy and it's not going to like bring this monster and I think that he hasn't had a lot of experiences like that and I I love that point that you made and yeah you can also tell that we're both educators of children <laughs> right us talking about oh the importance of play as yeah. <laughs> learning yeah. and exploration <laughs> yeah for those of you who don't probably most of you who don't actually know this we have it hasn't really come up um Hannah yeah. is an SLP and I'm in elementary education so we will spend a lot of time around um small humans um <laughs> amazing small humans and so anytime that this show deals with children or childhood in any way it's really fun to talk about that yeah. So another thing that I was thinking about, it's a little more of a serious thing of, of yeah, usefulness. Um, we kind of see this contrast of a few different elements of youth. And we see, like, we've been talking about the positive elements of youth with childhood and play, but we kind of get that contrast, like that they're the innocuous elements of youth where like the prank wars, the, there's a fit, putting a fish in the back of Ed and Harry's car and all that versus like, the young people at the beginning of the episode who are making kind of youthful choices that are innocent choices like they're just being exploratory like these kids want to go and explore this haunted house um but it's also like a dangerous choice you know like it's they're going into an unknown old building that they don't know what's going to be in there and I think you know even in even, even if we, even if there wasn't any supernatural being in there, that would still, I think, be, you know, something we would kind of term as like risk-taking behavior in young people. And that's a very normal developmental thing for youth. Um, but it's kind of contrasted with the like kind of innocent, safe youthfulness of the play in this episode. And then it's again, I think, contrasted with youthful choices that are actually a little bit more explicitly aggressively dangerous. So we have some like significant peer pressure in both scenarios where we have three people like three young people going to the house in the very first scene we have them 
we have the two boys that are pressuring the girl to go into this house. And so we have this like more insidious, like harassment and pressure that does put them in danger. And, and, you know, even the fact that one of those boys, once they're in the house says, you know, like, oh yeah, like there's this myth that like, there's this like legend that like the guy who lived here, like only killed girls, always goes after girls right after he's harassed this girl into going in. And I was just like the insidiousness of that youthful, like, I don't maybe fully, fully grasp how insidious this is as a youth, but also like it is insidious. And then again, later on the other scene with the three um, where they're playing truth or dare and, you know, they get, kind of give this girl a choice between like go in the house or like kiss this guy and she doesn't want to. And I'm like, the gender piece of that is really interesting, but the youthful, like mm-hmm. that contrast between like youthfulness that's dangerous and youthfulness that's really innocent and innocuous. It is, and it's presented in this sort of, ah, kids will be kids sort of way, but it comes with all this danger, right? And we find out the, the monster, right? We talk about the monster is being sourced through this website and the monster is being sourced through the website, right? And so all of these readers are tuning in and believing in it, but it originated from kids kind of fucking around. And trying right? to scare each other. Trying to scare each other. Uh, sort of along these like gender lines, like they created this story around like misogyny, um, mm-hmm. which if I remember correctly, I think Sam even mentions like, like yeah sort of like misogynist ghost, yeah right? sam talks about the spirit being like a misogynistic spirit right, right at the beginning before they even know where the origin when they just think it's actually just a spirit and not a tulpa sam right. like, identifies that there is a gender piece that's really specific and the and it turns out the kids that originally painted all these symbols you know, we're trying to scare people. And it's interesting that the the choice of the narrative was around female victims. So I wanted to bring this up and maybe, and stop me if this isn't the right spot. We never find out what happens to Dana, but it's heavily implied that she's the first body they find, right? There's this whole cut scene of, what is his name? Craig, the guy who originated it. Mm-hmm. explaining yeah it was me and my cousin Dana and I was I was like this is so odd watching this cut her face yeah. is gray and her eyes are modeled out and then I was like she looks really familiar she's the first body that they find the one that Craig is like it was real and she was dead because the rest of the episode he's really upset about it he keeps mentioning his cousin Dana it kind yeah. of switches the past tense halfway through the episode and That's- then she never again yeah, that's really that's a really interesting like plot miss I think on the part of the writers possibly because yeah that I hadn't drawn that line all the way through but I think you're right like she it is implied that she is and there's a I thought it was I was thinking it was weird in the scene where he confesses that mm-hmm. they did all these symbols like he is really interesting contrasted with the first scene where he's just like telling them the story and he's all scared and freaked yeah. out and then when he confesses he's weirdly calm about it like he is still he's like freaking out for a totally different reason he's freaking out because he's like we've been caught but it doesn't seem to have the same like we were scared like it's just it's it's weird and I think they didn't they don't wrap that up and really give us a conclusion to it maybe partly because this episode is a lot more lighthearted, and that Mm. would have forced a bit more of a reckoning with like the victims and they don't do that significantly in this episode no I think they don't talk right. to victims families they don't have to go to a grave site they don't ever even really show like emerge like the only emergency services they kind of show are like the police like it's not right well they even end and the monster's still kind of there yeah they just are like and they're like if it's a problem we'll come back, back if- yeah that is the other thing that I wanted to talk about is that scene when they come in and realize like, oh, these are other ghost, like these are ghost hunters, you know, and clearly it's, it's kind of the like joke of the trade. Clearly Sam and Dean are like, oh, these people who think they know what they're doing. Um, 
which is which is just something I'm delighted with. But there's this whole scene where they're trying to explain the EMF to Sam and Dean, who have just been joking around with each other. We just saw them so youthful. And suddenly these older men are like explaining this complicated technology and Sam and Dean are giggling. They're literally giggling with each other. Yeah, they can't contain the fact that they're just like, this is, it's hilarious that we have these people who are clearly, they're like, Ed and Harry clearly think they're hunters or think they're paranormal investigators. They don't think they're hunters. They think they're paranormal investigators. And Sam and Dean are just like, this is so funny because they're so clearly not. They so clearly have no actual concept of what's going on. They have somehow stumbled upon maybe something that, and at this point in the episode, Sam and Dean don't even like, aren't even convinced that this is their kind of thing. So they're like, these guys have just like, maybe these guys have just come up with this. And, you know, also one thing I found kind of, not specifically connected to youth, but connected to this point that we're making that I found a little funny was like when, Sam is talking about his research and they're driving and Sam's talking about like, oh yeah, like I was doing some, when we decided we were coming here, I did some like research and Dean is like instantly like, where did you do research? And Sam's like, I was, I did it on a blog. I did it on like a local blog. And, and he just like <laughs> razzes him for it. And I found that just like funny and also a little strange because I'm like, did you, you guys like, I don't know, you deal with like monsters and legends and things that like aren't generally real and so like it makes sense that people would talk about them on the internet though I guess maybe maybe also I'm bringing my own like 2021 energy to this (laughs) because I think that like it's a really 2005 mood for Dean to be very skeptical of like an internet forum you know, yeah. where people talk oh, about the supernatural and him to be like, well, obviously that's not where the real research is going to happen, which is really funny because later on in the show, that's absolutely where almost all of their real research is going to happen. It's going to be on the internet. I was going to say, I was like, now I don't, we all know that I haven't seen supernatural, but my understanding is very Bella and Twilight typing vampire into the Google search engine in terms of research. They're like, well, let's learn more about this. Yeah, we'll go to the library and also Google it. Like Dean is like, how dare you potentially find a case on one of these blogs, but I would trust Wikipedia as a source with my whole heart. It's so funny because it's, yeah, it's, it's, I didn't, the skepticism that he had, because it wasn't even really skepticism. It was just like, he was just like, that's goofy. It was just like, he was like, that's goofy that you would like, their website's called Ghost Facers or 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 whatever or whatever. I don't, maybe the website that's not what their website was called. Whatever their website was called, he was like, "That's that's goofy." Um, Hell's was it Hell's Hound something? Hell's yeah, Hound? yeah. Hell's Hound's Lair. Yeah, Hell's yeah, yeah. Which he's just like, "That's so goofy," and and it's so funny because that's gonna be so much of. It's so funny because they so much of their job depends on them hearing the stories of like locals in a town and taking them seriously. And as soon as they're on an internet space, the the, the their conversation in this episode is around that not being reliable. Yeah. But they go to the record store and talk to and to well, that's the, they go to the diner and talk to the kids. And it like isn't all that different. But in this early era of the internet, maybe I think that might be part of it, which is interesting. I think maybe why the, as the show evolves, they become, they also evolve with it in terms of how they listen to victims and how they listen to townspeople. Mm. It's also, I think, you know, kind of interesting in terms of the show's lore because they, um, like this is, this brings me back to like the Bloody Mary episode, um, where they're like, where Dean is also really skeptical of like a, like a, of like a large scale legend being true. And like in this episode, he, he makes the joke. He's like, well, you know, if like, you can just think something into existence, like people, lots of people talk about Santa Claus. Um, and in Bloody Mary, he's kind of has the same thing where he's like, Bloody Mary legends are everywhere. That doesn't make them real. Um, and it's, it's an interesting trend in in Dean particularly where mm-hmm. it's like you hunt supernatural beings like <laughs> you wouldn't think the legends might have some something to them like you're so surprised whenever you find a new kind of monster like haven't you been doing this your whole life 
You shouldn't be surprised by anything anymore. But Dean is constantly surprised by things, which is, I think, is funny. I think it's entertaining. It really is. It speaks to the, like, the writers really have us believing that they have, that the Winchesters have a very set belief system, right? Yeah. Of, of research and lore. And the writers <laughs> really have us believing in the efficacy of the Winchester's belief system and the fact that it exists and is solid and is thought through, right? That there's a reason Dean is like, obviously that's not true, but vampires are. And we are not given access to all of that lore, but it's so funny to me because I'm, I, I know we learn later on more hunter lore, but especially in this first season, the sort of, it feels very much like spinning a wheel and being like, oh, today, that monster, I don't believe it. This one, obviously. This one, only in some circumstances. And I, we don't know enough to know yeah. why. Well, you know, it's kind of like throwing a dart at a board. Yeah, and it's super weird. And I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that that will work itself out over the seasons. But right now, it's really obvious. Um, another thing that I thought of when you were saying that was, like, something that I had read um, some headcanon that someone had had and some, well, and not even just headcanon, but someone had basically written a, a thing about how they actually think, and I think this holds up pretty well to canon, that mm-hmm. John, you know, really, even within the hunter community, really isolated himself and his kids. So like, we know he had some hunter contacts because they're, even in this first season, they mentioned Pastor Jim, they mentioned a couple other hunters, but it seems like and for most of the flashbacks we get, like they didn't hunt with other people very often. They didn't have a lot of connection with the hunter world as a whole. John seems to have burned most of his bridges in terms of, um, spoiler for certain characters, people like Ellen and Bobby, like John mm. seems to have burned most of those bridges. So like, I wonder if part of the reason that Sam and Dean have both a really extensive, but also a really narrow view of the supernatural world is because they haven't had access to like the bigger networks. They've, they've only, they've kind of been told one person is the expert on the supernatural and that's their dad. And so anything that they did have an experience and they both have a, like, they both demonstrate this kind of skepticism, specifically Dean is more than Sam, this skepticism towards anything they haven't personally experienced. And I wonder if that's also because John exhibits that of like, until I've experienced it doesn't go in the journal and I don't and I don't really trust mm-hmm. other hunters and I don't really look for support from other hunters who might know more than me and and I think that the that his boys have kind of like picked up on some of that and that's maybe some of what's showing up and maybe that's some of why it's like throwing a dart at a board as to like which things they they believe in and which things they don't yeah I spoiler we don't have to include this but spoiler alert the Tumblr post that haunts me out of the hundreds <laughs> is the one that's like John uh, furiously hoarding his knowledge and he has like one notebook and he's put everything that he's ever learned in there and he only learns it on his own and if that notebook ever gets lost like he's fucked and then Bobby is like uh yeah I keep multiple copies of everything that's important stashed everywhere and I usually yeah. source it to multiple people so that we can all work off of this like the uh, it- me and it infuriates me it makes me so mad well to think about it and and we think about so many of the like challenges that the boys have in the first couple of seasons until they start to establish relationships with other hunters and so much of that is because like so many things could have been avoided like they could have known so many I refuse to believe that like the hunter community as a whole didn't know significant things about demons, like didn't know more about demons. And when the first time they meet a demon in episode four in Phantom Traveler, they're like, we've heard legends and they're like, we demon, they're so flabbergasted. They know nothing. And I'm like, I refuse to believe that no hunters have interacted with demons until season one of the show. Like it doesn't match with the rest of, and it does not match with the rest of the lore. When we get further into the show, we know demons have been actively doing things when the boys were young, even before that. We know that that's not as uncommon as season one makes us think. And that makes me think that because John hadn't figured that out himself, he did not pass that along to his boys and he hadn't exposed them to anyone else who could, like Bobby. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that could have saved them so much, so many downfalls and yeah it also makes me infuriatingly angry also makes me really grateful for bobby because yes he yes he creed he's the original 
we talk in like super later seasons again about like Sam and Dean developing this network of hunters and hunter information systems. Um, mm-hmm. But Bobby is really the original one to do this just in on his own with being a place where information was like reliably sourced. And Bobby is also one of the only people that protects their youthfulness that like yes! seriously oh. attempts to protect Sam and Dean's youthfulness. Also, I will say that my, like there's a lot of canonical stuff for that, but also I've read <laughs> a lot of fanfic and <laughs> one of the most common tropes in supernatural fanfic is the, is the exploration of the Bobby, Bobby's relationship with Sam and Dean and Bobby being a parental figure when they were younger. Yeah. And I love it so much. I think there's a lot to be said for how, right, we're bringing up ideas like John isolating them both in purposely in the ways that he's isolating himself and also like isolating them from reality or mm-hmm. from other community, just abusing the fuck out of his little kids. But I think we can actually tie that back to this episode in such a really unique way because we talked about contrasting Sam and Dean's youthfulness, but also expertise mm-hmm. with paranormal investigators. But I think we also see that so easily contrasted with the kids who are investigating the Hell House, right? These mm-hmm. kids who stumble into it have looked. And part of it is that no one has ever cast a teenager for a teenager's part in a show ever. No, never. Right? Especially but I'm in like, 2005. I don't buy that any of these people are even remotely near the ages of 18 and 19. I had a question. I literally, like, in the first diner scene, the first time we had like a close up, clear shot, not in the dark of one uh-huh. of the teenagers' faces, I was like, did they tell us? Th- I literally thought to myself, I was like, did they tell us they were teenagers or are these actually 20 somethings? And then right, I was like, like no, they, they're man. supposed to be teenagers. They're just played by 25 year olds. Yeah, easily, easily. But it's so funny because technically, Sam is pretty close to their age. Yeah. Sam's sure. right in there. Dean is not that much older. Dean oh. is the age of some of my friends when I was in like my early 20s, late teens. Um, yeah. More early 20s than I am now. But <laughs> right this, where are we going to find the kids? Where we always find them. There's this very clear, distinct yeah. line between Sam and Dean and the youth. Yes. And then Sam and Dean and the elder. Like there's just this weird bubble they exist in yeah I also found it really interesting and that's actually that specific line of like we'll find the kids like where we always find them because I was thinking about that too um but I thought about it slightly differently where I was like Ooh, are they drawing on their own like mm. own experiences from the past of like where would we have gone if we were in this town stuck in this shitty town because dad was working a case where would we have gone and like Fair. which is it kind of goes along with what you're saying about how they yeah they do differentiate between like the kids and the us as the not kids but they also draw on I think maybe their previous experiences as kids to like try and you know like they're they're walking that back and forth between like we're the experts and we're also similar ages and we're the experts and we're also similar ages and we're playing a prank war but we're also like really experienced with this like battle formation when we get into the house like we can go from like we can go from like goofing around one second to like in position to take down a ghost in like two seconds flat. Yeah. So good. Such a good, I don't know, such a good episode for setting up fanfic too, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Very, very classically. I think we might bring this up in just a second, but also you and I were messaging throughout the episode um, about, <laughs> about how iconic some of these scenes are, right? And especially every right, fan vid. Every fan vid. And so many people's avatars back on Tumblr in 2014 oh, came from this my episode. God. I know. I had an Sam avatar that I appreciate. What? The shot of Sam laughing after super gluing Dean's hand to the beer bottle. I was like, I have seen this shot so many times it lives permanently in my brain yeah. it is burned in there I'm watching this happen in real life as though it's deja vu yeah I'm pretty sure I had an avatar on tumblr back in the day that was like one of the shots of Dean driving the impala in the beginning like with the road like with the jacket like uh-uh. I just 
iconic stuff in this episode. So we're going to move into our going meta segment. We're going to check in on some of the things that we're tracking and talk about them a little more. So number one um, is our uh, keeping track of deaths. So um, kind of in two categories, we have two meaningful important deaths to this episode. I think that I think that's it. Um, at least two that we kind of explicitly know of. And that's the girl originally, probably Dana, that we've kind of determined as Dana. And then the other female victim. I don't remember her name. In terms of like significant character deaths, we don't have any in this episode. Again, it's like a really lighthearted episode. Next is the Bechdel test. It's the Bechdel test is such a low bar. And it is very rare for shows to pass it with flying colors. Uh, but I will say, I will say, I do think those count. <laughs> it's like 85% passing. Yeah. <laughs> Same. What are you, what are you laughing about? Sorry, I thought that was a really funny joke. And then I <laughs> sat a lot of gender feels. So I sat in that for a second. <laughs> of being like 85% passing. <laughs> oh, I get what joke you're that's making. That's my new tweet. That's my new tweet. So I'm, I new tweet. Next is lore. We've talked a bunch about the lore related stuff um, already. Um, the kids that are doing this prank paint uh, like a devil's trap, which we're not, we don't know. That's the one with the star and the circle around it. Obviously, we don't actually get explained that that's what it is, but that's going to come in. We're going to learn that actually pretty soon. I also thought, in terms of that, that it was really interesting how they play with technology and the supernatural world because this tulpa is not just it's not just like the, the reason this tulpa gets so strong is because it's channeling the energy of this like website and so many people have access to it and you know one of the big ways that they try to solve this problem is by shutting down the website because they're like we can cut off its power source but not like in the normal way of like salt and bury the like salt and burn the bones or rock, you know, whatever. They're like, well, if we stop the website, if we cause the website to crash, then like it'll lose power, which I just thought was like a really cool use of lore and technology in the supernatural. It is, especially in terms of supernatural to show. Yeah. And our, our discussion about like how Dean doubts this internet source. Yeah. I feel, I feel like there are some threads there around, I don't believe the internet, but this is only happening in our show because the internet believed in it and demanded it. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like that could be extrapolated to talk about a certain angel or something, but. Oh, I think there's some fascinating stuff there around what makes something real. Is something real when enough people can see it and believe in it? And when you can't, you can't write it away, no matter how much certain writers may have wanted to you know if you know <laughs> what we're talking about you know <laughs> all the way up to the big man himself <laughs> which it gets you back to like show lore versus versus fandom lore versus fandom lore about the producers and writers it's just a whole thing yeah the holmesian versus the watsonian approaches or no <laughs> amazing the doyle, the doyle and nobody no sherlock fans come at me i pointed out like five times when we were watching this that I just this episode's so pretty like this episode is all of my favorite things about the Pacific Northwest where this is filmed it's like a moody episode the coloring is really I personally really like the coloring maybe it's terrible I know the um there's a, <laughs> the other podcast the other driver picks the podcast show that shares a name mm -hmm. with us and is uh, also working through season one right now they end up talking a lot about like things like lighting and how that works or doesn't work. And one of, so I started paying more attention to it. And one of, so I, when they get to this episode, I'd be curious to see if they like or hate the lighting in this episode, but I personally love it. It makes this episode moody and like feels more like a horror-y sort of show um, in kind of the best like Halloween-y ways. And that might also just be because it's October and I'm feeling the like Halloween vibes, but I loved it. <laughs> also the outfits in this episode are just like fantastic. Um, in terms of the actual locations, it's filmed all over uh, like Vancouver. It's filmed at a couple of heritage buildings, at a campground in Surrey. Um, 
kind of makes sense, you know, for this episode. This episode's filmed a lot. The the um, actual house is um, just like a private property. Um, yeah. Uh, and then the actual like location of the episode is, uh, I think they said West Texas. Yeah, I don't think they just, they don't specify yeah. the actual town, I believe. I think it was off Richardson is the most that okay. I got. Um, and I, I lived in Texas and I don't know where that is. So it but might it was, be- It's also East Texas, so it I might be fucked. They also, <laughs> they also, it also just could be a fake. It might be a fake town. And I'm not going to bother looking it up because- Nope, do not care about that. Um, pop, cult- <laughs> pop culture. Bring it. I, you want to, I've talked a lot. Let you, I'm going to let you talk through a couple no, of No, I, I really want to hear you go off in this section. I really like when you talk about pop culture. I'm not going to you. Really excited about this section. I mean, I literally on my notes, I wrote Ghostbusters, Ghost Facers <laughs> with like 18 exclamation points um, because I just love they, the show writers were like, you know what we should do? We should have some knockoff Ghostbusters that think they're hot shit, but really aren't. And then Dean should use the line, who you going to call? to try and like mess with them and get them caught by the police. I just think that's like completely funny. Um, and I love that it works. And I also love that it reveals like that Dean, you know, likes the ghost, yeah. likes Ghostbusters. Like it's just- it them both looking. They were both like, you might call us. Um, there's also, you know, I'm not sure if it's Ed or Harry that use them. They're like, sweet Lord of the Rings. And it's just like, okay. Something, it's something that, you know, that's a joke I would have made when I was young and, 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 uh, young and on Tumblr. It's the kind of joke that went around Tumblr, you know, that kind of a phrase. It's, it's funny to see it in, in 2005 Supernatural. And then my, (laughs) and then, you know, another one of my favorite references, WWBD, what would Buffy do? Which, Mm -hmm. you know. Again, just kind of classic. Like I love the the references they're all pulling are all my brand exactly. So I love it. Um, The one final one being that the, when Ed and Harry are talking afterwards, we get like before Sam and Dean kind of show up at the end, we get them saying, one of them saying, oh, Mordecai just has like a really, must just have like a really high attack bonus, which is like a very specific sort of D&D reference. And they reference role-playing games and- you know, these, these two are just huge giant nerds and it's kind of delightful how many references they managed to sneak into this episode as a result. Now, our last part of our going meta segment is going to be um, our gaydar section where we talk about gay stuff and also gender. Um, (laughs) Where, where to start today? Maybe it's the, the gender feels have been really strong for me lately anyway. <laughs> Make me feel like, again, 2015 called it once the term gender feels back. Yeah, um, I'm not sure how I feel about you using that in 2021, but it's I, hard to find a new one, new term that <laughs> describes what it feels like that's not that. It is, you know, the gender fuckery happening in my life. Dean was such strong gender this episode. Oh my god! I don't know. I don't know if it was the lighting. I don't know what Jensen Ackles was on this week. The hands, the jacket, delightful. Those are that's my, you know, expression connected to this. But then the expression <laughs> in the episode was so interesting. Um, yeah, Dean's constant obsession with the performance of masculinity yeah um with the genders of the people around him um yeah I really want to see where you go with that before I dig into it any more than you know just mentioning it but I will also say and I brought it up earlier like as a throwaway I do think the funniest line from this episode is (laughs) when they're talking the ghost faces are talking to each other they're like we might have sex with a woman (laughs) (laughs) like I don't you know lines that they didn't know you know lines that that someone no one in the writer's room no one in like I don't believe anyone in the writer's room thought through no that line in any way other than the very specific literal way yes yeah they They meant that to emphasize they were like oh my god 
a woman, a real life woman, a woman, we're going to have sex. But what came off was instead of having sex with each other, we might get laid by a woman. <laughs> and I love that for, I love that for this for so many reasons. Um, the point I want to make first off is that, is, is, is that, is that, that Tumblr, like a Tumblr post or something I've seen in many, I've seen it in a number of places. They're like, the, maybe it was on TikTok. They're like, where they're like, the only people that talk about their gender. So like, you know, obsession <laughs> with gender usually means like something, something interesting is going on with you. You know, like people who are really settled in being cis are usually not talking about it all the time or obsessed with policing it in other people in the same, you know, it's just really interesting um, how that's is not, that was not a very coherent sentence, but I am fascinated with Dean in season one, particularly obsession with, yeah, like gender and gender expression. Um, the line that piqued me for this episode was, you know, when Sam and Dean are talking and Dean says, legend says he only goes after chicks. That explains why he went after you, but why me? And, you know, and Sam just sort of like blows it off and like laughs and just kind of goes like, whatever, dude. Like clearly Sam's like, dude, this, this is a joke you make a lot. Like, it's weird that you make this joke this much, but I'm not personally like, I don't uh, doesn't concern me whereas Dean you know again this is a joke we've I'm pretty sure we've already seen this once this season at least we're gonna see it again we're gonna see it consistently um and I think in you know there's two ways you can look at that you can look at that as sort of a like disparaging I'm gonna say that again because my phone went off you can look at that sort of like two different ways you can look at that as like Dean disparaging like women or you can look at that in this, like, Dean has a really complicated relationship with, like, gender and gender expression and gender presentation, um, partly because of his experience as a caregiver growing up, partly because, you know, of his experience of masculinity as portrayed by his dad, partly because he didn't grow up with a lot of females in his regular everyday life because he lost his mom so young and was very isolated. You know, you think about, like, all of those things and like what is going on when he's making that joke um that comes across as one thing but I think maybe is is more interesting to think about in another way and when and I think when we get to know more about Dean like later on in his relationship with gender like it he ha it seems like he always has a fairly fragile relationship with it like it's always a little bit in question of like how you know he really needs to prove his masculinity in ways that are sometimes really toxic and sometimes are really exploratory and that's really really interesting I know I think you're right on the money right this this fragility and how it interacts with their their childhood rearing and environment and always coming back to fucking John um I think I think there's a lot to be said with the contrast with Sam. Mm -hmm. they, perhaps hilariously, I was going to say, I feel like Jared Padalecki wants to reassure me of his masculinity more than Jensen Ackles. I don't know how true that, that is. I don't I know how like true Jensen, that. Yeah. Jensen feels like more confident that we know he's a man. He just wants like assurance. Jared, Jared feels much more anxious about it. It's, um, you know, you're in the fandom. Yeah, I feel like that's actually, I, I have no idea if it's accurate or not. No in idea. terms of them yeah. as actual people, but that's, if I was going to guess based on them in general and the way they portray themselves and are perceived in the yeah, public you know, spaces. Some recent, some recent moves vis-a-vis -vis social media with the, <laughs> uh, with the day ones, because um, they're no longer J2. Oh, um, oh. but I think it's fascinating that Sam very rarely feels the need to confirm or affirm or restate his masculinity. Um, mm -hmm. and that might change as the show goes on again and working off it's, a very specific profile. Honestly, like, I think, I think it, it, it evolves and grows 
ways there, but it does. I would say, I think that's actually a pretty consistent thing for, for Sam. Like he doesn't seem to feel the need to prove that he doesn't seem to need, feel the need to like give caveats when he has emotions or vulnerability Mm. or, or displays more like stereotypically feminine traits. Like most of the time, Sam doesn't seem to feel the need to like accompany that with like a, but I'm still a man. Whereas Dean often seems to be like, I did a, I did a quote unquote girly thing. I've now got to like, make sure you know. Well, man. Yeah, exactly. He's like, no, wait, I need us all to take a minute and acknowledge that I didn't do that. And it, it didn't like affect my mask. My gender's fine. Right. My gender is strong, man. And it's, you know, it plays on a couple things. It plays on that trauma response of Sam felt comfortable. Sam feels confident. Sam's identity and interaction with the world is something that he like comfortably has mm-hmm. versus Dean's very tenuous relationship with the world where he's constantly trying to prove himself. And he's constantly trying to prove himself as a hunter to his father in these ways that are very coded. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, there's something to be said for the difference between them in terms of that, but also coming at it from the gender perspective, from the gender and sexuality perspective, I, I'm not saying Dean is trans. That's not what I'm saying with my heart. No. What I am saying is that one of the very early takes I saw that really reassured me about where I stood gender and sexuality wise was cis people don't think about their gender. Yeah. That's what the thing I was trying to point out earlier that I said really yes. terribly, but yeah, like that. Thing. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, you were right on the money. I think you're spot on with it. Right. And it's not, I love people discussing Dean's gender. I'm all for that. I don't personally take it as Dean having a nebulous relationship to his gender as much as the way that gender and sexuality are so intertwined and the relationship between a healthy expression of gender and sexuality does not exist under toxic masculinity. And so Dean's true authentic expression of himself feels like a betrayal of who he's supposed to be and so it's often in these instances where he reacts very instinctively really quickly really emotionally that he like sort of backs up and wants validation that he can still be a man because the way he's understood being a man does not mesh with that yeah and I think that's going to be really interesting more and more as we get later into the show in terms of sexuality, because I think you're absolutely right that it's more, it's not about, it's not about gender identity in the same way, but it is about gender expression and how that intersects with sexuality and what's expected of him. Even like some of the things we find out later about some of his relationships um, with women and, you know, the role he plays or the role he struggles to play, um, you know, the relationships that are really healthy that we see that are even like relationships like with Cassie, um, you know, theirs is a, is a very like relationship where he is existing and not, and there does the focus is not on like, you know, him being a masculine person in the relationship. Like the relationship is, it doesn't really need that as opposed to like some of the other relationships he has or like individual one night stands that he has where there's a lot more of like, I need to prove that I'm a a man. And that's part of how I'm doing that is by having this relationship or having this experience. Um, You know, I'm going to go and get drunk and hook up with someone because Mm. that is the perception of like a man that I have to maintain because I'm also feeling all these conflicting things about sexuality about my other relationships about like other people that I care about that maybe I don't know how to express or how to like ask for or how to be vulnerable with or like I express vulnerability in like a relationship that you know not even a romantic relationship just like a relationship that I have with someone of the same gender as me and so I don't quite know how to reconcile that with like what I've been told a man is and so I have to if I assert my masculinity that eases some of the pressure on me for like these other things that I'm also trying to yeah. reconcile. By Dean writes, you know, like yeah, oh by yeah, Dean, gay Dean. I'm like that man. It's not a straight man, and no. I and it's so... I know people walk away from the show believing that, but I'm like people did the same thing about Kurt. Okay, 
it's true from you know that whole it's a tick it's again you know that tick turn that song you know historians will call them best friends roommates yeah. colleagues anything but lovers <laughs> like <laughs> history hates lovers like we're very bad at, at seeing yep. characters that have more fluid sexuality and identify and like not just being like oh such good friends and so I, I don't see yeah. and I love that we're seeing that even in season one we're seeing that like Dean's relationship with gender and sexuality is more complex than even I think the writers were trying to like the writers are trying to establish him in this one particular sort of like role and it's not even working at this point which I think is you know credit to a the more some of the nuanced writing and also the way Jensen is playing Dean and playing his um experiences out and like I yeah I love it so much we're gonna end today with like a little theory check-in and this is just um an opportunity for us to talk about like things like genre and literary and film tropes that we see in this episode we thought this episode was a great indicator of a lot of those things in some really fun ways we've talked about a number of them already so we're gonna go pretty quick and I really just I just kind of want to like list the things that we've that we see the tropes that we see um the haunted house just the concept of a haunted house yeah yeah and the concept of um youth and like girlhood in horror stories like the all of the visual shots of the female um characters the female teenage girls like that's such a horror trope yes Yes. Um, the outfits, weirdly, I felt were very 80s. 80s, 90s. Well, huh. Even some of them. The record store shirt, the diner outfits. There's a um, lot of that era in this town. Yeah. Yes. Even yeah, the it feels almost like a 50s, 60s diner almost. Like, Yeah. I was kind of like Greece era. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just throwing out some 1900s decades. Um, but... <laughs> um, yeah, it kind of felt like the tropes of like their appearance and like it needed to be set in a like older horror film. Mm-hmm. Even the like the fact that he's going at them the with like an axe, like it's very yeah. like classic. It's very classic like murderer spirit thing that's just like hacking away it's not really thinking it's not strategizing it just comes at you with an axe or it springs you up like it you know it which makes sense given the fact that this was like teenagers that created but I like like that interplay of like that's what of course that's what like teenagers who are trying to scare other teenagers are going to do they're going to play off of genre tropes and they play off of genre tropes by like creating this idea of this like this particular kind of killer yes yes um I think the truth or dare yeah in is such a good horror trope of like no I'm here on a dare don't get me scary ghost man (laughs) the like shot of her with the door yeah you like know? you very specifically need this like youthful reason for them to be there yeah no one over no one older is going to be there for those reasons they need someone who's going there to explore it's the idea of like not just like being in a place that's haunted but like going to a place that's haunted because it's haunted because yes. you want to be scared because you actually yeah. like are young you're 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 craving the thrill of like being scared and like there's all these genre tropes of like local legends of like you know my cousin Dana told me and I don't know who she heard it from and like this person told Mm -hmm. this person and I don't know where the story came from um like that's just such a common thing in any local legend is like tracing it back to where it started is sometimes almost impossible because everyone in the community has contributed in some way to its creation and in this sense literally to its creation yeah yeah I think also in terms of like bookending that the sort of dubious ending is also a really lovely horror trope you don't tend to get that often with other genres but specifically horror of the what's gonna happen next this monster is still technically out there get you if any day now it could leave the property and even the heroes 
responding to that, like that unknown by being like, well, we'll just come back, you know, next right. time on exactly. <laughs> like it's set up for like a, a, you know, dumb horror sequel. Yes, it is. Return of Mordecai. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like please no. That would have happened. Yeah. Yeah. I also think burning the house down, right? And the and the figure of Mordecai standing in the burning doorway is also a really lovely, like classic horror image. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So many good tropes. So many good tropes of like horror tropes in an episode that's actually not really scary at all. No. Like at no point is this episode scary or even really like vaguely creepy at a couple points, but like it's not, it's a funny episode, but it manages to still bring in all these tropes and use them, I think, to its advantage in terms of the comedy. Yes. Yeah. Such a, it's really an interesting episode. I kind of want to watch it again just to, I don't even know, dig into it. I, I feel like, I don't even know what I feel like. This was an yeah. interesting episode. Yeah, I I agree. It's a it's it's been diff it's different than any other episode we've had so far this season in some really yeah. interesting ways that I haven't quite pinned down yet. And I think this conversation has helped me like understand it a bit more. But I'm I think I I want to come back to this episode more often because I think it's probably been for at least four or five years since I've seen it, and I. Yeah. I'd also like, I'm excited, spoiler for later season, but um, to watch this in conjunction with the other Ghost Facers episode, because I think the other Ghost Facers episode is the one that's way more commonly watched. And it's really funny um, because it's actually, actually like, it's actually an episode about them. It's not just, they happen to be there. Um, it's an episode very specifically focused on them. And there's a whole gay storyline in that episode. And you know, I'd love to watch those episodes actually back to back and kind of, I think that'd be an interesting. I like that. Yeah. So I might do that. Anything else you want to say on this episode, Hannah, in general? No, I think we've hit all of my points. Thank you for joining me today. Of course. Thank you for having me as always. This was so fun. What a like weird little episode. We are so glad that you've all joined us. To those of you who are listening, thank you for coming along for the ride. We wish you a peaceful road until we meet again next week. And next week, we will be discussing season one, episode 18, Something Wicked, through the theme of impossibility. A note to our listeners, this episode was recorded prior to our season three name change, where we went from Driver Picks the Podcast to Saving People, Queering Things. For all of our new social media platforms, visit QueeringThingsPodcast.com.